today on Ag News Daily. Uh, our storage is completely full. Uh, there's just nowhere to put new gallons of ethanol production because demand is, is down so much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast here with Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson. And Mike, there is a lot to get through today. A lot of news going on in the world of agriculture. And we're not going to be having a podcast tomorrow because it is Good Friday. So we've got a lot to talk about today. We do, which is kind of nice. And it's not all coronavirus related, which is fantastic. Uh, the coronavirus thing is still the big thing moving the markets. It's obviously this is an unprecedented event. But and actually, I do have let's kick it off right away, Delaney, with some coronavirus news. Get it out of there. What do you say? OK, we can do that. All right. So the big coronavirus news again today, not a huge impact on agriculture yet but it could, especially on the protein markets, was initial unemployment claims was released again today. And yet again, this week, just like last week, initial unemployment claims came in higher than 6 million people, which is an absurd record. I mean, the it's insane. In the past three weeks, 16.8 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits. Um, That is huge. And we did see the cattle markets down. We'll talk about that when we get to the markets. But these unemployed people are going to be running out of paychecks eventually. And they're certainly going to take a cut in pay. And that's the impact on agriculture is how much more demand can they support. And, of course, it has an impact on the equity markets and everything else. But coronavirus still causing people to lose their jobs, still impacting the markets in a huge way, Delaney. Absolutely. And as we continue to look at other coronavirus related news, we've got to talk a little bit here about the stimulus package. We were discussing yesterday on the podcast that there was the possibility for Congress to add another $250 billion to the Paycheck Protection Program. Well, it seems that Senate Democrats have halted that effort and boycotted it, voted no, etc. And so I think it's dead on arrival. I don't think there's a possibility for it to continue on, but I don't know that for sure. And Delaney, since you are way more interested in the politics of this stuff than I am, what was the Democrats' reason for blocking this? Are they just, well? why are they blocking So part of the reason was, at least on the face value, was that they were concerned that by adding this $250 billion, it would go to businesses that maybe didn't really need the money. However, behind closed doors, I'm sure there were other things going on because I know that SNAP and food assistance programs have still been a really big argument in Congress about how much money should be allocated or should have been allocated for that. So that's maybe reading between the lines a little bit more, but... Their stance is that because of, I guess, the way MFPs were released as they were concerned that like that, just in obviously the general economy, it could be impacted poorly and go to businesses that maybe didn't really need that money. Gotcha. So they're worried about basically uh, the rich getting richer, so to speak. Right, right. And they're also, I mean, we're also worried about that on the agricultural side of things. They're worried about it. 
and have put a lot of pressure on Secretary Purdue to make sure that this round of MFP payments, which it sounds fairly likely we're going to see another one here in 2020 of, are more evenly distributed. So as part of this stimulus package that we saw passed, we saw $6 billion will go into the CCC fund, or excuse me, there's currently $6 billion in the CCC fund. There's an additional $14 billion that were that was marked in the stimulus bill to replenish the CCC fund, but that money won't be able to go into that fund until July when fiscal years start over. So currently there's 16 billion in, or excuse me, there's 6 billion in there with an additional 14 billion coming in likely July. And so Secretary Purdue has said that once the cash flow starts to roll back in, it's likely we could see another round of some sort of aid package. But until that time, they've got to figure out what they can do right now with just the $6 billion that's currently sitting in that CCC fund. We also know that the livestock industry, as well as specialty crop producers and local ag systems, whatever that means, will be getting about $15.5 billion as well which will be on top of or in addition to any sort of stimulus package that could come out with MFP payments. Okay. So, I mean, basically there is a ton of money floating around. The question is, who is it going to get allocated to and what's the method by which they're going to decide to allocate it? That's what we're kind of waiting on right now. And so it doesn't sound like this year the CCC fund will be focused more on COVID-19 impacts versus trade impacts like we've seen in the past. So perhaps the CCC fund or the MFP or whatever they're going to call it this year, perhaps it won't go to producers that raise corn and soybeans. It will be focused more so on dairy and livestock and produce farmers since they've probably been impacted a little heavier because of COVID-19 and the supply chain disruptions. Yeah, I would imagine you're right. And I would also imagine that corn growers get more than a penny since this mm-hmm. COVID lack of driving has hit ethanol. So right. Far. Absolutely. You're probably spot on there. So I'm going to say soybean producers probably not going to get as much as maybe they have in, in uh, MFP payments past. Will they get something? Who knows? Right. It's a wait and see game. We'll see what comes out of D.C. And Delaney, we're going to put you in charge of staying on top of this issue. OK, I'm I'm happy to. All right. Well, we do have some other news out of Washington, D.C. Delaney, do we want to talk WASD right now or should we do it just before we get into the markets? What's your take, producer Delaney? (laughs) My take is let's save it till we get to the market segment, Mike. Perfect. That sounds like a great idea. Then I have a story here should be beneficial, a little bit bullish to the corn market, although it is just words and we need to see deeds here before the market gets truly excited. But Delaney, you have been talking for the past, oh gosh, probably six weeks about how China appears to be making the preparations to begin increasing their imports of American agricultural goods. And we got news again today that perhaps that is indeed the case. China earlier today raised their estimates for their corn imports in 2019 and 2020, and they raised it 1 million metric tons. So they were planning on importing 3 million metric tons of corn. Now they've raised it to 4 million metric tons of corn, and the bulk of that is expected to come from the United States. So the the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs published their monthly crop report earlier today, and they said the price difference between domestic Chinese corn and imports might expand further following the trade move. 
which could incentivize more Chinese imports of U.S. corn. So this could be another indication that China is kind of warming up their wheels to really begin shipping in American products. Now, I did say this should be bullish, but at the end of the day, the trade is waiting to see these bushels of corn on ships bound for China. Once that starts to happen, I think we'll actually start trading these numbers that are put out by the Chinese. As it stands now, it's just a kind of a feather in the cap for the corn market, Delaney. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, and I'm sure you've had this discussion with Ted and some of the other folks there at the Zaner office, but for so long, trade was dominating the headlines and also dominating the way the markets were moving. But now COVID-19 has probably taken over, if not maybe completely monopolized the way that our trading system has worked. And, and I guess, is that what you guys have been discussing? Is trade really as important anymore? Or has it taken a back seat right now to all the COVID-19 news? It's still vitally important, but you're exactly right. It has taken a back seat. The COVID news is much more pressing because it's hitting now. We know that it's hitting and it is having follow on effects in trade as it disrupts supply chains. So even if we wanted trade to be awesome with China right now, I mean, we still can't get stuff to certain places in China due to COVID. So we got to address that before trade, I think, really comes back onto the mind of a lot of traders, uh, I was going to say on the floor, but at their screens uh, trading uh, ag commodities. All right. That was kind of my assumption, too, but I thought I'd get your take on it, Mike. Well, I yeah, have... think you're right on the, uh, right on the nail there, Delaney. <laughs> I have two other quick pieces of news, the first of which is looking at loan maturities for marketing assistance loans. We have officially seen the USDA release information today that said producers now have more time to repay those marketing assistance loans as part of their relief program that they're implementing to help with coronavirus the CARES Act, essentially, of 2020. So those loans now mature at 12 months rather than nine. And this flexibility is available for most commodities, but I would encourage you to look at USDA's website and or reach out to your FSA offices to make sure your commodity is covered by that. But I think that is definitely a win for U.S. agriculture. The other thing that USDA is announcing or as put on the radar of especially beef producers is their investigation. As we know, Mike, they launched an investigation last year after the Holcomb, Kansas beef plant fire. And now they've just said that they are expanding that investigation to include pricing practices that have happened here during the COVID-19 market disruptions. We have seen a couple of GOP senators also put some pressure on USDA and the administration to ask the Justice Department to get involved as well. So essentially, USDA is going to be looking at the recent growing spread between boxed beef prices and live cattle prices that occurred following the coronavirus outbreak. And that's going to be folded into their ongoing probe into the Holcomb, Kansas beef plant that was already going on. So we were originally expecting their investigation to be wrapped up here within the next two to three months. That's probably going to get stretched out a little further now since they're adding COVID-19 into this investigation. And so we don't really have a new timeline on that, but I think they've just been feeling the pressure from beef producers, from Congress and from other folks to say, hey, what's going on here? We need to have this checked out a little bit more closely here. 
Yeah. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of producers. In fact, I was on the phone with a uh, producer in Northeast Iowa yesterday, and his big concern on the cattle side was the volatility. You know, just the fact that we're basically moving the market limit day in and day out. I mean, that is a neck snapper. And if you're trying to use the markets to hedge, Mm -hmm. it can be very frustrating and it can be uh, somewhat expensive when you're dealing with margin calls, Delaney. So that's, I think, where all this pressure is coming from. Right. Yep. I'd agree. Well, I've got another story here before I'm uh, ready to get into the WASDI numbers, but this one is from Cargill. Starting this spring, Cargill is leading a consortium of uh, a fund, I suppose is a better word for it, that will pay American farmers for capturing carbon in their field. It sounds a lot like, and Delaney, we have had Indigo, Indigo Ag on the podcast before. This sounds a lot like what Indigo is doing. Cargill's just going about it a little different way. They're calling it the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund. It's a partnership with Iowa Soybean, a third-party verification company, Quantified Ventures, and they're going to track how farmers are capturing carbon. They're going to basically total up what that amount is, how many tons of carbon are captured, and then they're going to sell carbon credits. And they're going to try to build a market that will price carbon. So growers who are doing, you know, whether it's no-till or planting cover crops, you know, there's a million different ways to, uh, to help sequester carbon in the soil. And if you're doing those, the idea is maybe you can get paid on it. So we will keep track of this. Uh, I sent an email out to a connection I have at Cargill. We'll try to get them on the program to discuss this and how it might differ from what Indigo is doing and why they think they need to start their own and uh, go about it a different way, Glenn. So we'll just stay on top of this deal. Well, I just think that it's positive that agriculture is at least trying to address this issue. And I know that a lot of times consumers or people outside of agriculture don't care about the science, but I I just really hope that at some point people will recognize that we are doing more than probably our fair share here in agriculture to try and address those concerns. Exactly. And you think you put a, I think if you put a price tag on the good things we're doing, we're going to see a lot more of those things. And it'll do a lot of good for the environment if all of these different schemes for carbon capture work out. So anybody trying something new, if you've heard of something like this in your neck of the woods and we haven't talked about it, reach out to us. Find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily and let us know what you're seeing on the ground. If you've enrolled in one of these programs, We'd love to talk to you about your experience. Just uh, drop us a note. Let us know if you're uh, cool chatting with us about how, uh, how it's all worked out. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to chat with a producer that's thinking about it or has implemented it into their operation. But, Mike, I am out of news. Should we jump over and talk WASD for today? Yes, let's do that. And again, just like March's WASDE report, the report, the numbers were kind of overshadowed again by coronavirus. But the trade is incorporating this data and it will help shape prices for the next month. Looking at U.S. ending stocks, uh, this was kind of the shock kind of a shock, not necessarily a huge one. Uh, corn ending stocks grew uh, basically about 200 million bushels. They came in at 2.092 billion bushels. The trade was figuring we'd come in at 2 billion on the slowdown in ethanol grind. Uh, for soybeans, USDA estimated the 2019-2020 ending stocks at 480 million bushels. 
Last month, they had it estimated at 425. So again, we saw a slowdown in soybean consumption. On the wheat side, all wheat ending stocks came in at 970 million bushels. The trade was hoping we'd see 940, and the USDA in March said 940. So across the board, stockpiles grew over this past month. Jumping down to look at the world ending stocks, the world's corn ending stocks came in at 303.2 million metric tons. That is about 5 million metric tons more than the trade was anticipating. That was a bearish number, but the corn market shrugged it off today. For soybeans, the uh, the world ending stocks were pegged at 100.5 million metric tons, not too terribly far off from the trade's guess of 100.1 million metric tons, and in fact, slightly bullish. Uh, and it was down significantly from March's estimate of 102.44. They also took a look at global, excuse me, global wheat ending stocks, and that came in at 292.8 million metric tons. The trade was thinking we'd have 287.4. So again, a bigger number on the feed grains than the trade was figuring that we'd see. And uh, that is probably going to suck some of the air out of mm-hmm. any rallies we get in the short term. But uh, they weren't terribly catastrophic, and the trade was figuring we would see a slowdown. It just came in a little slower than folks were guessing. I also want to add, too, Mike, that we saw them adjust ethanol on this report, and they dropped corn use to be produced by ethanol by 375 million bushels on this estimate. So that was part of the reason we saw the drop in corn usage there on this report. And I think that's very fitting because for today's interview, we're going to be talking to Jeff Cooper. And just a quick disclaimer, we recorded this with Jeff last week, at the end of last week. So we didn't have the chance to talk to him about this information, but we talk about the ethanol industry in general, which I think is very timely. Absolutely it is, Delaney. With Jeff waiting in the wings, should we jump into the market and see how things close? Let's do it. All right, folks. Well, for the first time in a while, we have green all down the screen in the grains. Looking at the corn market, despite the bearish WASDE report, we saw May corn close up one and three quarter cents at 331 and three quarters. December new crop was up one and a half, finishing the day at 350 and three quarters. Soybeans also higher on the day. In fact, strongly higher. The May contract was up nine cents, wrapped up at 863 and a half. November new crop, seven and three quarters higher to close at 875 and three quarters. Wheat also big mover to the upside again today. The May contract up eight and a quarter to close at 556 and a half. December new crop up seven and three quarters, finishing at 567 and three quarters. Unfortunately for our producer friends, that green on the screen did not translate to the livestock markets. April live cattle were up. They were closed up $1.17 and a half at 94 even. June live cattle, however, down $2.30, closing at 84.37 half. In feeder cattle, we did see the April contract down 35 cents at 119.52 half. The May down 42 and a half to finish at 118.95. Hogs were down across the board. The April contract was lower by 32 and a half cents at 42.80. The May down $2.47 and a half cents, finishing up at 4325. We can continue to plumb new lows in the hog market. Jumping over to dairy, holy cow, another day with a lot of red on the screen in class three milk. The April contract down 22 cents at 1356. May down 36 cents, closing the day at 1147. With that, let's kick it over to Jeff Cooper and see what is happening in the world of ethanol. Well, as we continue discussing 
issues impacting agriculture today, we're turning it to the ethanol side of things, as well as biofuels in general. We're talking today with President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, Jeff Cooper. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me on. Jeff, set us up here. As we look across the biofuels industry, we've been talking a lot on the podcast about ethanol in particular being impacted by this lack of driving going on. Set us up and explain to us from your perspective, how long can we expect this, the demise, I suppose you could say, of ethanol to last? Right. Well, ethanol is a motor fuel. It's a component of our gasoline in the U.S. Uh, about 10% of every gallon of gasoline consumed in the U.S. is ethanol. And so when motor fuel demand falls off a cliff, as it has in the last few weeks, uh, ethanol goes right over the cliff uh, with it. And, and so we are seeing uh, demand loss in the range of 40 to 60% in, in, you know, depending on what part of the country we're talking about. Uh, and that has obviously hit our industry uh, very hard. Uh, we've had a, a number of plants uh, that have idled their production. Uh, our storage is completely full. Uh, there's just nowhere to put new gallons of ethanol production because demand is, is down so much. And, and obviously it's all related to the COVID-19 pandemic. We have uh, you know, a number of states now where governors have issued orders to stay at home and and shelter in place. Uh, we've got kids who are doing schoolwork from home. They're not going to school. Um, people are working from home. So there's just uh, been a uh, tremendous loss in you know fuel consumption and just uh, vehicle miles traveled out there on the roadways. So um, it has been a a catastrophic type of uh, demand uh, loss in the ethanol industry, and and our industry is is really reeling from that. Um, in terms of, of when when we might uh, turn a corner, I, I don't think anybody knows at this point. I think it's too soon uh, to tell when we come out the other end of this thing and, and where, you know, where, where that light at the end of the tunnel is. Uh, we don't see it yet. Um, and in fact, you know, we, we think we are very likely going to see these, these very depressed levels of, of fuel demand uh, for the next few weeks at least. Uh, you know, we know that uh, the, the president has uh, encouraged folks to, to stay home until uh, at least April 30th. So we're, we're expecting that we're you know, likely to see at least another month of these very low depressed uh, demand uh, numbers. And, and that's uh, obviously hitting our industry quite hard. Jeff, when you think about how the ethanol industry is coping with this loss in demand, um, how have they adjusted? Obviously, shutting down plants, idling workers, doing maintenance. Is that, yep. is that the best-case scenario we can hope for for right now? Well, it's, it's you know, really one of those situations where you just feel like there, there's, you know, we have no control over it. Uh, there have been other, other sort of uh, supply-demand disruptions in, in the past um, that have kind of come and gone uh, fairly quickly, and, and they've been kind of transitory in nature. But this one is is of a scale uh, that, that is just huge for the industry, and it just feels like there isn't a whole lot that, that the industry can do about it. Um, you know, we, we can't we can't force people to go out and 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 consume more gasoline. Um, but the, the ways that the industry is coping with this is is number one, they're they're reducing 
their output. And, and we've seen three dozen plants, you know, around 35, 36 facilities that have fully idled their capacity. They're not producing a drop of ethanol today. Uh, and as recently as a month ago, they were running, you know, full steam ahead. Um, in addition to that, we've got, you know, we think 50 or 60 other plants um, that have significantly reduced their output. Um, so they're running at kind of 70% of normal or 60% of normal operating rates. Uh, and so you, you take all that together, and we think about 30% of the industry's capacity is, is offline today, is, is sitting idle. Uh, and we expect, uh, we, you know, honestly, we expect to see that number increase uh, in the weeks ahead. Jeff, one of the other issues that's been going on right now which obviously is tied very closely to this pandemic has been the administration's announcement that they're i guess from what i understand allowing oil companies or oil refineries to get out of some of the blending requirements or loosening those requirements during this time how does the renewable fuels association feel about that what have you shared with the president or the administration in regards to that announcement this week and maybe you can share with our listeners too a little bit more about what that could mean for the biofuel industry Sure, I'd be happy to. And, and you're right. Uh, prior to the coronavirus pandemic really slamming our market, we, we were already dealing with uh, some demand challenges. Uh, you know, the, the, the trade war with China, I mean, China was once our third leading export market, and, and it's been completely shut down for the last 18 months or, or two years. Uh, but we also had this, this situation where the administration is excusing refiners from their legal obligations to blend renewable fuels. There's the, you know, we have a renewable fuel standard uh, that was adopted in 2005 by Congress. It was expanded in 2007, and it requires refiners in this country to blend increasing amounts of renewable fuels with, with gasoline and diesel. Um, it's, you know, it's the law of the land. Uh, but in the last few years, we've seen the Environmental Protection Agency uh, with the endorsement of the administration, um, allowing small refiners to ignore those legal obligations and, and not blend renewable fuels. Uh, it, it, it all was kind of happening in secret. Uh, we didn't even really know that these refineries were being allowed to avoid their obligations uh, until sort of after the fact, and, and we've really been dealing with this issue for the last uh, couple of years now. Um, you know, we sued EPA over their abuse of, of this small refinery exemption provision. Uh, we actually won in court just at the end of January. We got a, a favorable decision out of the courts uh, that we thought would be, you know, adopted by EPA and they would abide by the court decision and get back to enforcing the renewable fuel standard as it was intended to be enforced. Uh, that's particularly important now when we have the sort of collapse in demand that we're seeing in the fuel marketplace. And we're also in a situation where ethanol prices today are higher than gasoline prices at the wholesale level. And that is incredibly rare. Uh, we don't typically see that. Um, so, so now is exactly the sort of scenario or the sort of, uh, you know, situation where the renewable fuel standard becomes that much more important. It serves as really that floor, that backstop of demand uh, to ensure that refiners continue to do what they're supposed to do and blend renewable fuels, um, even when you have these sort of uh, major disruptions in, in the fuel market happening. So 
the RFS uh, has never been more important uh, than it is today as we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on fuel markets. So we do continue to uh, interact with the administration and EPA and certainly our uh, friends in, in Congress to, to make sure that uh, the renewable fuel standard will be implemented and, and enforced by EPA uh, and that refiners will be required to blend uh, renewable fuels like ethanol and biodiesel. So uh, that does remain a, 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 a you know very important priority for us. So, Jeff, just to follow back on that same topic, other than continuing the conversation with Congress and trying to make inroads with this administration, short of taking them to court, when the administration unilaterally makes these uh, exceptions to the RFS that they then you know, hand out by decree to the detriment of the ethanol industry, what else can we do? What should concerned producers be doing right now to let the administration know that, hey, ethanol is pretty vital out here in corn country? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question and, and a great point. I mean, it, w- when you add up these exemptions that EPA has, you know, sort of secretly handed out to these r- small refineries in the last few years, it's amounted to another demand loss of four billion gallons of renewable fuel blending over the last three years. Um, so it, it it really is a uh, you know double whammy. We're getting hit with with COVID nineteen and the impact on on gasoline demand, uh, and then we've got this other demand loss I- issue we're dealing with with these exemptions. Um, you know, producers ought to be weighing in with their elected officials, uh, the folks that, that they voted into Congress, and, uh, you know, state governors and, and other officials to let them know just how important this issue is. Um, you know, we're, to answer your question, I mean, we're sort of scratching our heads, too, about what else can we do. I mean, we took the agency to court. We won. Uh, and, and still, uh, we're not completely convinced that they are going to follow the law and abide by that court decision and do what needs to be done to get the RFS back on track. So the only way this thing is going to get fixed is if, uh, you know, the, the, the grassroots, the farmers who, who, who benefit from having that additional market in the renewable fuel sector uh, get mad as hell and, and share that anger with, with their elected officials, uh, that's when we're going to start to get something done here. Jeff, I hate to even ask this question because I think that rural America is still very largely in support of President Trump, but it feels like, and, and you can share with me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like President Trump is not following through on his promises to make the biofuel and ethanol industries his main priority here. Is that the stance or the take that you guys are feeling as well? Well, we, we've certainly gotten mixed signals uh, out of this White House, I, I will tell you that for sure. Um, I mean, we, we've had, you know, President Trump express strong support for uh, ethanol specifically. He's expressed strong support, of course, for uh, for our nation's farmers. Um, he's, you know, he's been to an ethanol plant. I actually had the, the honor of uh, escorting the president around an ethanol plant in Iowa last year. Um, he asked a lot of good questions, uh, was, was very interested in, in the process and just the, the impact of an ethanol facility on the local economy. Um, so, so you know, we have heard a lot of the right things out of the president with regard to ethanol and renewable fuel standard and E15 and other issues we care about. But there seems to be this huge disconnect between those commitments uh, and those promises and those pledges and, and those, you know, g- good intentions and what we actually see out of EPA. Uh, and, 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 you know, we've had numerous situations where we've heard one thing out of the president and then EPA comes out and does just exactly the opposite. 
Um, and so it, it has been a, a concern. It's been a, a huge frustration for our industry uh, that's really endured throughout this, this administration, throughout this presidency. Um, and so it has been frustrating, and we've expressed that frustration directly to the president. Um, it just feels like there's been a, a you know inconsistency and, and a lack of follow-through on a lot of the, the commitments and promises that were made regarding ethanol. Well, Jeff Cooper from RFA, it has been a frustrating six months. It's been a frustrating few years for the ethanol industry, but the last six months in particular have been especially tough. If we've got listeners who want to get more engaged in this topic, they want to get involved somehow in the ethanol industry, what's the best way to get in touch with RFA? How can they get some more information? Well, I, I think our website is a, is a fantastic resource for everything happening in the ethanol industry. We've got all sorts of uh, publications and, and fact sheets and, and just lots of information there, as well as all the latest news, everything that's happening in the industry, uh, kind of up to the minute. Uh, and that's ethanolrfa.org. Uh, so ethanolrfa.org is the website. Um, you know, of course, we've got all the social me- media accounts as well that, that you can follow uh, the RFA on. Uh, but producers shouldn't hesitate to call us either. Um, you know, we, we, we really love hearing from uh, farmers and, and others just about what's ha- you know, what they're seeing in their local community with regard to ethanol, um, how they're being impacted by uh, policy decisions at the state and federal level. Um, you know, so that's the best way to get, in, get engaged with us. Um, but again, you know, I think the, the, the best way for individual producers to get engaged is, is to weigh in with elected officials, tell them how this, these decisions are, are impacting them, um, but also to be advocates in, in their local communities, um, you know, to, to correct the myths and misinformation that's out there about ethanol uh, when they're, you know, at church or at a, at a meeting in town or, or whatever. Um, you know, write letters to the editor. Um, you know, if you're active on social media, uh, if you see something that's just completely untrue about renewable fuels, respond to it and, and provide the facts. So I, I, I think there are a lot of ways that individual producers can be advocates, uh, and we've seen that that you know pay off um, in spades uh, in the past when when people get motivated and, and unified. Uh, that's when we start to see some change. So uh, those would be a, a few ways that I think uh, folks could be you know get more involved. Well, Jeff Cooper from the Renewable Fuels Association, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today about this really important issue that is doing a lot to affect what's happening in rural America. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity, and, and again, we're, we're here uh, for the industry and, and here for the farmers that support uh, the renewable fuels industry, and, and anything we can do to help, we're, we're happy to do. So don't ever hesitate to, to reach out. <laughs>